Hello and welcome to Industry Town. Today, well, we've got a really big show. In fact, it's kind of like our Super Bowl. Today's guest is a friend, a wonderful actor, an incredible teacher and genius audition coach, and my mentor. I'm talking about John Rosenfeld. John has been my professional acting coach for almost a decade. He's also the man who empowered me to become a teacher and entrepreneur. I wouldn't have this podcast right now if it wasn't for him. So this episode is a long time coming. In fact, I am pretty nervous about it, and I haven't been nervous about any of these. I was nervous because I didn't want it to fall into the trap of just kissing ass or asking softball questions everyone already knew the answer to. So I insisted that we did this away from the studio and with the aid of some tequila. I'm really happy with what we found and that he agreed. And this episode begins right after I poured a rather impressive glass of Casamigos for each of us. We covered a ton of ground. We talked takeaways from 2019, lessons from almost a decade running JRS, a conversation about therapy and its role in our lives and the role we hope it plays might play in our clients' lives, uh, what it means to be present in your work, and so much more. I hope this episode finds you well this holiday season. In fact, as I'm recording this, it is the first night of Hanukkah. So if you observe, even if you don't, uh, may your lives and hearts be filled with light. And no matter what you celebrate, may your holidays be full of joy, good health, laughter, and kindness. If you feel like sending some holiday love towards the show, it would mean the world to me if you would share this show with someone who you think would dig it. Any actor aspiring uh, to come to L.A., any aspiring artist, uh, just spreading the word about Industry Town is the coolest kind of thing in the world and would warm my heart. Okay, enough of that, and now, here's John. Lock it up, very quiet and still. Ready. Scene one, take three, A mark. So, have you ever had, like, a traditionally terrible tequila night? Yeah, when I was young, and, you know, you drink those margaritas, they're mixed by who knows what, and they, they, they do the bottom shelf tequila. Oh, yeah. And when, uh, when we shot the video for my wedding, the, uh, the drunk history that we did, mm-hmm. it was tequila for me that night, and everyone was worried that I wasn't going to drink enough. They thought I was going to kind of, like, lean into it. There was a lot of, he's the actor. He's going to just pretend that he's drunk. And I thought, no, I'm going to... I'm going to do this. Do you know what type of tequila it was? I don't remember anything from that night, John, and I'm not kidding. <laughs> you, um, were, you were authentically drunk. Oh, it's, yeah, it a- absolutely. Wow, we've got sunglasses oh, inside. I've forgotten where my glasses are. <laughs> That's is, okay. That's time. all right. Do you need them? No, I can wear these. This is good. It gives me a, look at me. I'm like sun-kissed. It's the prescription. I wish I had a picture for everybody right now. Right now. Cheers to this look. sunglasses inside. That's my jam. So we are drinking tequila, and we are having um, something that's a long time coming, which is welcoming John Rosenfeld to Industry Town. Woo! I know. Well, we can maybe add in some like massive applaud sounds, like uh, <laughs> like Radio City Music Hall is watching us. Um, so yeah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm. I admit that I was a little nervous about this one. Me too. A little bit. Uh, well, I'm going to share first, and then I'm curious about yours. But I guess. I know you really well. I get to talk to you a lot. I get to pick your brain a lot. And so yeah. figuring out like, what are the in, what are the insightful questions that other people are actually going to be interested in as well that don't kind of trod ground that's been trod before. And then there's also the thing that happens on a lot of these podcasts where people just kiss ass incessantly. And that I feel like is a fine line because 
I have a lot of praise for you and you are my boss. And so it's an easy thing to lean into that I feel very wary of. So that's, that's why I'm a little nervous. How about you? Uh, I want to do a good job, you know, with you because I, you know, we've talked so much about this and, you know, it, I've thought a lot about this as far as I do sometimes get uncomfortable in front of the mic. And I think it's because, you know, when I teach, it's so much, to, it's about coming, everything's off of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Right? So it, I'm not, it's not premeditated, nor is this, you know, but it's coming off of so much stimulus an actor saying something, an actor doing something. Uh, and you just get so inspired by what you're seeing. So I don't have to think about what I'm saying. It just comes out of my mouth. Maybe it's not always the most uh, coherent or lucid thing, but typically I can get my message across. But somehow with podcasts, I know what I say is the only thing that's going to be heard. Well, and we're putting a large mic right in front of your face, which does prompt uh, some kind of expectation. Yeah, it does. It prompts expectation. So that in itself is... You know, I think everything about acting is, you know, for me, it, it's always like, how do you just drop into the givens? And this is so much like the given is there's a mic in front of my face. <laughs> well, drop into it and just let that sweet uh, Jewish Clooney voice yeah, just, this, we had to shout it out once, right? Yeah, there we go. Okay. Well, um, I'm happy to be here with you. I'm happy to share space with you. So we are, this is an away game for me. This is not where I normally record. We are in your guest house right now. Yeah. Which is beautiful, by the way. I cannot believe we used to teach tool shop in here. Right. It's now a someone's bedroom, so it really doesn't feel like a classroom anymore. Yeah, definitely not a classroom anymore. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> here's where I want to start, uh, and we'll see where this takes us. But Let's take a ride. There are a lot of people who know you, John Rosenfeld, the acting teacher. They have met you in a consult. They've been in your class for three months. They or longer. Um, they go to the studio, but they haven't seen you in a couple of years, or there are people who know you tangentially through people who are very involved at the studio. What is something that most people listening to this do not know about you? That's tough because I am pretty honest about every single thing in my life. You are pretty upfront. I'm pretty upfront. Um, it's a lot, I find it a lot easier to teach if I feel like I'm not hiding things. Uh, I think people must know that I'm a worrier, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, usually it's worrying about how they're doing, but you know, I'm good at worrying about a lot of different things. And you can worry multiple, you can juggle multiple okay. worry balls at the same time. You know, I consider, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a gift and a weakness because I, you know, I try to forecast possible problems, okay. you know, <laughs> which makes you be able to avoid them. And I'm sure at other times they wouldn't have happened anyway. So, uh, but I do think it's good for people to hear that because I think people know it like intellectually yeah. that you can be neurotic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think people don't really always know what neurotic means. I think that phrase gets thrown around. Oh, the neurotic Jesus. That maybe means just high strung. No, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a deep, sophisticated, ingrained thought process that can color almost. Lots of things. They can color lots of things. I think most people, when they meet you, they they might throw that word around, but you do seem inherently in control. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of the situations you should be. I mean, it's your class. It's your business. Um, But I don't think people realize that within all of the control that you might exert, 
that behind that there is a neurotic voice causing a lot of this to to work. Yeah. So there's well, one piece. I think. Okay, so let's just go with the neuroses. Uh, let's say, well, God, I get, I'm neurotic about my son. You know, I mean, you know, I want. Am I making all the best choices? Is he going to the right school? You know, how is he relating to his friends? Um, uh, what have I done? What have I? handed him down genetically that's going to somehow inhibit his progress if we don't think about the other side of how it's going to lift him up do we pay attention sometimes to that i give myself a second to go okay oh the a you got that that's nice for me but i think uh you know god it's taught me i think it's partially because i mean there's so many things just observing uh uh Mom, I think she was a, you know, she's a neurotic and a father who often wasn't neurotic enough. And I think, you know, you watch that, like, I'm sorry, you should have worried about that. Yeah, uh, you know, we should have hit the radar. We could have averted some disasters. Um, so I think it colors different areas of my life. I think for when I watch actors, you know, I, I, I want to make sure they're doing everything in their power to put their best foot forward. And sometimes when, if I'm observing that they're not quite fully understanding where they're at, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I get worried that their expectations aren't in alignment with reality and that will may make it harder for them. Do you find yourself worrying about people who sometimes maybe are not worrying enough about themselves where the, uh, the teeter-totter is way shifted towards your worry about the situation? Yeah. I mean, I remember there was this one particular actor who I would watch in class and he would constantly tell me how he killed, killed. I love when someone says, I killed it. I crushed it. I killed it. It could be so uh, violent. You know, <laughs> he would tell me how much he killed it, but he was not killing it in class. And Knowing his psyche, you could tell that he was, um, he could uh, have a revisionist brain, you know, and eventually what happened to him is what I thought would, you know, he'd stop getting as many chances because he kept on creating a a reality. Okay. Um, Studio is almost 10 years old. Yeah. Which is crazy. And congratulations, by the way, for coming up on that in February, right? February. Been there since day one, second. February 2nd. February so everyone 2nd. start writing your cards now. <laughs> You're welcome, everybody listening. Um, what was something, if you could go and talk to John Rosenfeld of 2009 mm. as he's embarking on starting the studio, what's something you wish you could tell him that he didn't know at the time? I don't think John Rosenfeld of 2009 would have listened to me. <laughs> you know, I think at that point he would have taken, I mean, I would say, hey, it's going to be okay. You know, it's just keep doing what you're doing, doing it, do it because you love it. Um, but I think, uh, you know, I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for it all. You know, it was such an undertaking and I had no idea. You know, you came, you were with me. And Literally the saw, night of, and then the next of, morning, you saw me. You saw it build up, and it really did it all on its own. And it was, uh, it was with a lot of sweat. I, I had, lo- I lost a lot of weight. I had never worked so hard in my life. Just, so, if anyone needs a diet, this is a uh, one path. Can, there really is. It's the first it, that, that was the stress diet. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think, 
I, I would just, okay, I would say one thing to him. Be very careful who you initially hire you know, because sometimes when you need to suddenly, you know, when you start a business, you need to find the right accountant. You need you need to find an account, you need to find anyone who will do something for you. Yes, I need to find an accountant. I need to find an insurance guy. I would say, call a lot of your friends who have businesses and ask who the best ones are. So it's don't do it alone. Yeah, and initially you feel really alone when you're doing it. You know, as you're making all these choices because you have no frame of reference. But um, at the same time. Uh, I'd go back and say, trust your instincts because, you know, a lot of those instincts were, I got surrounded by such remarkable people. So I did something right. You did. Absolutely. I feel like, uh, there's 10 years of now, like of really good data that you did. Really good data. I'm, I, I am, you know, my heart is so warm by the fact that, you know, our initial crew, uh, they're still there. Yeah. You know? Like, you know, the family that we've created, you know. The community was there from the get-go. It's grown and morphed into something much bigger uh, than I ever could have imagined. But that nucleus is still there in that feeling of closeness and of wanting wanting to find a family within the framework of the studio. I think that was there from the get-go. You and I sidebar so much and, you know, we talk on the phone, in the kitchen, yep. we just sidebar. <laughs> this time and, we're just recording it. Right. Well, I just find that so many, uh, well, first of all, our, it's why just, you know, I'm sure you too, it's like we love, why we love coming to work. It's, you are surrounded by your favorite people. Mm-hmm. And when you're surrounded by your favorite people, you're, you can, you, you can be sure that as long as you actually go to work, you will have a moment of connection with someone that you are thrilled to see, thrilled to be with, thrilled to share space with. I find for myself, it's really hard to get out of my own way when I'm alone, when I'm at home. Uh, I can be my own worst enemy. But when I show up to class without any work at all, my attention shifts to other people and I'm maybe the best version of me it definitely it's up there where all of a sudden I, my own I actually am way less neurotic I think when I teach and I feel like infinitely more at ease with being present to what's happening in front of me and there's a trust ironically when there's all these people who need it from me that I actually know what I'm talking about and I can be my best self with them so question when you were you know at one point you took a little bit of a step back because you were doing you know, you're making lots of money with your Wendy's. Cheers to that. And you had I'm a lot. Take a drink there. You had a lot of free time. Mm-hmm. Uh, how was that for your brain? Well, at the time, or looking back on it. Looking back on it. Looking back on it, it was not. I did not use that time as well as I could have. Um, I found that I let a lot of busy work and like my schedule started filling up with all sorts of stuff that once I didn't have the money to pay for it the same way, I realized I don't, do I really need to be seeing the chiropractor twice a week with the acupuncturist right after that? And then the trainer in Santa Monica where I'll drive inexplicably an hour both ways to get there. I found that I was a, I distracted myself a lot that if you describe now to me, you don't really have to worry about money for the next five years. You can create the career you want to create. You can go on trips you want to go on. 
I think uh, my idea of what I'd accomplish in that would be much greater than what I think I did. And I like to think that if I got that opportunity again, that I would have a lot of knowledge to bring to it and be able to get even more out of it. Mm-hmm. But the fact, I mean, I, I get frustrated with myself when I think about that time. The fact that I didn't like start a YouTube channel during that time and just like crank out videos constantly. The fact that I chose to invest some of my money in um, a Broadway play, which was a neat experience that took me to New York and I got to like meet the cast and be there for opening night and have neat memories. Wow. But I didn't invest in my own short film. Right. Like that keeps me up at night sometimes. I'm I'm with you. I, no, I, it's really interesting because you know I, I think you and I are so much alike. And you're saying what do people not know is that um, I think this teaching. Um, it's, this may sound very self-incriminating, but I think it saves us from ourselves in a lot of ways. Yep, is that I have definitely designed. Is my brain, I look, as a neurotic, as a worrier, um, and life is really good, you know? I've got a l- wonderful wife and wonderful child, wonderful friends, uh, but no matter what, uh, too much free time is hard for me. And I I was very challenged when it came to just to sitting down. I got, you know, when I went to Oberlin, I, I, I thought I wanted to write. And it was, it was very challenging for me to sit down and do that. You know, I could write my papers, but when it came, to, as long as it was an assignment, you had to do but it. When it came to, you know, writing takes, uh, you know, it's your own ambition, your own, you know, the own story you really want to tell, and often the only story I really ever wanted to tell was about some neurotic guy. <laughs> uh, but I found it really challenging to sit down and do it. And at one point, I, uh, but I really think if it weren't for teaching. Uh, and graduate school as well. The one thing I will say about graduate school, um, they immediately identified, well, first of all, I noticed that uh, I almost got kicked out in that first month. Was there like um, an incident? No, not kicked out. I didn't, no, okay, I'm, this I, isn't I, I, like, I may be grossly, uh, I may Kevin be Kevin Spacey getting thrown out of Juilliard I, I, for hitting someone with a tire iron. No, no, that, that that's an embellishment. I, what they did was, uh, they told me they were concerned. Okay. Uh, and for very good reason is that I was really challenged with the schedule and the work that it took to be successful. You know, they immediately gave me a lead in a play in translations and I I was someone that I think was going in and out of depression. And when you're going in and out of depression, if, you know, one thing I'll say about depression is it feels like you're really busy. <laughs> even when you're doing nothing. Because you're carrying around this emotional weight all the time. Yes. It's It's heavy. It's it's being in a rocking chair. You are moving around. You're just not getting anywhere. And uh, my teacher, Nancy Lane, uh, told me that she needed me to go to therapy. She wanted me to go to therapy. And and, uh, that really saved me. And ultimately, I was able to surrender to graduate school, which is working for 15 hours a day. And God, did I love that schedule. You know, and you could argue, okay, aren't you just you're not dealing with your stuff? I would actually argument argue that it basically just builds a structure for you. You know, just a framework for your life, a framework for your life. And then I became addicted to that. So I'd say with teaching, uh, 
it really safeguards me against some of my like some of my worst habits. But I agree. Sometimes I I beat myself up that uh, I I I I love when I watch my actors do the very thing I was unable to do. And I'm sure you do too. All the time. When I watch them sit down, when they like Leah McKendrick, oh my god, sitting down and writing her script. When now you know it's on the blacklist. Congratulations, Leah. I know. And Bethany, oh my and god. you know, and I'm watching all our people do so well with their you know selling scripts, and all they do is they've made it a they've just made it their schedule. Yeah, they figured out somehow to manufacture that deadline that doesn't quite exist necessarily at least at the start and to be and i never really even gave it a shot like i did not do the very thing i would teach which is say just do it every day from 8 to 12 no matter what and i never gave it that time (laughs) speaking i feel like i'm listening to listening to a mirror that's not really a thing but well it's hard if you're really honest like i have and you know uh, nicole dalton uh uh one one of the people who started jrs um, she said, you can know it to be true and not do it. Oh God. Yes. So that's, that, that gives me a, a little bit of, uh, that gives me a big, I don't know, a little relief. You mentioned that your professor in college told you to go to therapy. Yeah. Grad school. Uh, grad school. Um, therapy was really important to me. I started, I think it six years old yeah. and I, with a child therapist where I really thought I was getting away with a lot because I knew that therapy was a place you were supposed to talk about things and you were supposed to work on something mm-hmm. but I didn't know that child therapy they did that through games so I thought I was getting away with something by like playing Monopoly <laughs> and sword fighting and so my mom would say like what do you talk about in therapy and I what was your instantly name? Dr. Witty Dr. Richard Witty okay my childhood was Dr. Mince Dr. Mince I think they might have had something in common <laughs> Um, but I still remember lying to my mom and just being like, oh, I talked about, you know, how I, how I cry sometimes and then I, I bite my fingernails. That's what we did. And she'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah. And absolutely thought that I was pulling one over on her. And little did I know she was talking to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, well, we play these games and if I don't let him win, he throws a fit. <laughs> Which was exactly what was going on in every part of my life at that point. So I had no wow. idea how much I was exposing myself but thinking I was getting away clean. Why did they, is that why they sent, were they, your, your parents were They married? were together at that point, yeah. They were still married, okay. Yeah, they were together until I was in high school. So this was a lot later. Uh, did your brother Yeah, Graham went to a therapy too. I think it all started because of the 89 earthquake. And I think that really scared Graham. And that put him, I think that's how they thought about it. I could be having some of this wrong. I'll ask my mom. But I know he started first. But Graham was much more... With uh, Dr. Witty. With Dr. Witty, who then moved to Maine and wrote us a couple like postcards later about... I remember he described a market where people were quote unquote hawking their wares. And I was like, I I don't know how to relate to this postcard. Uh, But I think I was the one that needed a lot more because emotionally I was not doing great as a kid. I was panicking constantly. I I wouldn't, I wouldn't swim in a pool. I wouldn't go on a roller coaster. I wouldn't learn how to ride a bike. I wouldn't sleep with the the lights out. I was just scared all the time. I remember being like four years old and my parents having to just hold me as I cried uncontrollably because I was afraid of death. And Graham, I think had told me, well, you know, if you're four and you live to 80, you're 120th of the way through your life. What was your moment of thinking about death? Do you remember your first moment? I don't know if I remember the first one. I, I remember... I recently had this conversation with my mom because I remember the first time it occurred to me and it... it, it well, it, tell me that story. Yeah. 
I was watching a Raider game with my dad. Oh my God. <laughs> it was in, I don't know, 1978. It was late 70s, mid to late 70s. And it just, the image occurred to me of passing away and then just not existing again. And it just took over my being. And it tells you something that my dad was right there and I certainly didn't feel comfortable asking him about that. And my mom had gone, I don't know, to the grocery store. Actually, you know where she came back from? Stan's Donuts in Westwood. She loves Stan's Donuts. And she came back and I asked my mom, I was like, and I asked her about death and I said, is it true that when you die, you just, there's nothing? What'd she say? You know, she let me hold my feelings and, and she just said, uh, I don't think she tried to soften the blow. I just think she <laughs> said, yeah. Well, in Jews, we don't believe in an afterlife. And right. so there's not, whether people believe it or not, there's not an easy thing to tell a Jewish kid about that. Yeah. I, I do appreciate that she didn't try to take it away. She didn't. I mean, that's one of the things I do worry about my son is that, you know, uh, he's going to ask that question. Yeah. And my wife and I should probably talk about what that answer is. Well, you said you were thinking about getting a pet. You better have that conversation before you get that oh, pet. Oh, I know. Trust me. Yeah. I'm um, so sorry. Oh, God, I was in therapy today just talking about that. It's still, it's almost three weeks, and grief is intense. It's a real, it's a real thing. For me, I realized it was loneliness. I didn't, it took me forever to recognize that. But for me, it was, I thought that death, somehow I would have consciousness of being alone. And I also kept saying, well, no one will be at my funeral because you two will be dead and Graham's older than me. So he'll die first. I just had a very linear understanding of it all. And for me, it, it was way more about loneliness than it was anything else. Again, looking in the mirror, <laughs> that's gotta be what it is because you and I are both younger brothers. Mm-hmm. Graham is how much older than you? Three years, three months. My brother's two years, six months. Okay. Um, both of our brothers are highly intelligent. Yep. Um, and my brother and I were not close. Um, and my parents were not particularly happily married. So <laughs> I understand. So I think there already was a kind of general understanding of being isolated alone, which is why my parents sent me to Dr. Mintz after the divorce. Yep. You know, because it just was a little bit more of, they, they could tell I felt um, kind of on an island. So, talking about this therapy idea, we, I mean, I've heard you suggest, I've definitely done it, that certain clients should explore therapy at different times. We, what do you see as the role of therapy in an actor's life? Why is that so important? Why, if someone says well, I've never gone to therapy or maybe puts up a wall. I don't know. That's for me. Why would that maybe be a red flag or of interest? You know, initially it just tells you about where you come from, you know, that you don't come from an environment where that's, uh, seems necessary or, or even within the realm of possibility or else, or, you know, I mean, some families look down upon it, they think of it as elitist or West Coast or East Coast, whatever. Or that something's it is. really fucking wrong with you. You're right. Sick. Or it's just yeah, unless you're very ill 
Um, I God, I have so much to say on this issue. You do too. I do. I want to hear what you have to say. Um, look, I have to admit, even though you know my mom's a therapist, and I really didn't even. I myself didn't really understand the value of therapy until I went to therapy in graduate school. I thought, you know, hey, my mom's a therapist. I know a lot about myself. And I was so wrong. But luckily, and here's the thing, I had my, I mean, I was 21, 22, and Nancy Lane said, you need therapy. And what I love is that she didn't bother explaining. I mean, I did ask, like, why? She goes, just go. Just go. And one thing I'll say about me, and I may be true. I think it's probably true for you too. You want to know something about me? I, I, I will always explain. I explain too much. Oh yeah. I definitely explain too much because I never want you to feel, and I know you never want someone to feel that you're teaching from a pedestal. Yeah. You know, uh, teaching from the trenches. Right. And it's hard because I don't want anyone to ever think that I'm teaching from above or that I think I'm, uh, because I, you know, I'm in it with you. Uh, but Nancy was great, but she said it in such a certain way, and you could just tell from her tone that she's saying, listen, just go, you'll ask questions. I will not be able to say anything that will make you feel better about me recommending a therapist. You just need to trust me and go. And that's the one thing I will say, just please trust me and go, know that's coming from a really good place, and I think that it'd be really great for you. I co-sign on that. To me, when someone puts up a wall about therapy I get very nervous because the first thing I assume is a lack of curiosity about themselves that there is a lack of either wanting to look in the mirror and understand or an inability to do that or a thought that asking those questions will somehow make you worse off and to me you know therapy can be a place if someone is ill to go but uh, I think that that's kind of an extreme to me therapy is a place to understand yourself better to process the life you have going on and it doesn't end it's not like you go and you fix something and it's over you go to constantly look at your life and have your assumptions and your patterns hopefully lovingly questioned um, so you have a better understanding of why you function the way you function and to think about what might be different but might work a little better and also understand the world around you through those same through that same lens this may be a bit dark but i think that if someone never goes to therapy it it's not because they have not ever needed it yes right like every human being will need some help some guidance yeah even if they're doing great they'll be in a relationship where there's a uh, where the relationship hits a wall. You need some assistance at some place. Yeah. Um, but I agree with you. I, look, I think, especially when it comes to acting, you know, acting is so much being a, in, in theory, it's about being an expert in the way a character thinks. In the way and, a human thinks. And if you don't know the way a human thinks, as, I mean, you have to know the way you think if you're going to become an expert in how a character in those particular given circumstances is going to think. Um, and, you know, most of the actors, a majority of actors that I, you know, love and adore, I listen to them on podcasts and interviews, and they pretty much without fail will mention their therapy sessions, mm -hmm. you know? And you'll just notice that because they're not 
I think the other thing about going to therapy, even if you end up, you know, it's interesting. My wife and I went to couples counseling mm-hmm. and um, this great woman, Janice, and, you know, it's always a little frightening. You know, it's the same way it's scary to go to an acting teacher because you're going to get a, uh, it's like a weigh-in, you know? Yeah, you're saying, someone's going like, to look at you objectively. I'm going to look at you objectively. This is what we witness. Yeah. And Gabby and I went. Um, we had had some friction. Nothing big, you oh, know? You're a um, couple. You've been together for a while. You share space. And, um, you know, we just found out we were not the best referees of our own fights. Shocker. Shocker, right? Um because I'm when, the best ref- referee of everything in my life. Honestly, I call the plays, I call the flags, and everything works out much better because of that, he said facetiously. He said facetiously. And then what was wonderful was all of Gabby and my, uh, uh, all our conflict, basically, we talked within 10 minutes. Janice goes, you guys are fine. You guys are good. Nothing. Like, she aired one grievance. I aired a grievance. You know, I said one thing wasn't fair. Then Gabby said, you're right, that's not fair. And then Gabby said something. I go, that's not fair. And then Gabby, and I said, and then Gabby was like, yeah, we, we all agreed that some of our things were not fair. Yeah. And then Janice just watched. She was like, you guys are fine. Um, I just want to see each of you independently. You've got your own stuff that has nothing to do with each other. And I like you as a couple. But it was amazing <laughs> the amount of uh, anxiety we had before going there. It's the worst thing that you would, uh, if, you know, you, you, you live in fear as a neurotic. The therapist is just going to look at you and go, I don't get you two. Yeah. What, what were you thinking? Yeah. What were you thinking? It's just somehow you're. Uh, your interior doesn't seem to really be, uh, I don't know, it, it it doesn't seem to fit well with that person next oh to you. God. That is the nightmare. But said it was like, no, you guys are great. And that was a, a relief. Have you seen Marriage Story yet? Yes. How do, you, how do you like it? It's wonderful. It's wonderful. I feel like it's specially made for children of divorce. Oh, God, yeah. But the one nit I have to pick with it that I do think probably makes it a much easier movie for the world writ large to enjoy it. Tell me. But I think their conflict's a little thin. I, and, by, and by thin, I actually mean um, not true to relationships. I mean, they're, this is not really a spoiler, please see marriage story anyway, but basically it's she wants to live in LA. He uh, slept with somebody um, once and, uh, and he even has that line of like, you shouldn't be upset I slept with her. You should be upset that I had a laugh with her. And... I just think that so many marriage conflicts are actually much more about, uh, they're just much more nuanced and less uh, sexy than I want to live on the other side of the country and, and you want to live in New York. And often it's things that have nothing to do with your everyday life. It actually has everything to do with where you came from. And it's much more complicated to understand why it's bothering people the way it's bothering them. You're right. The con- it, you're right. The conflict wasn't that extreme. But I, I would say, I think it's a more sophisticated version of like the wife. Yes. <laughs> Remember the oh, wife? Oh yeah, last year. That was the last movie year. no one actually saw, but everyone, have you seen The Wife? I saw the, yeah, it was, it was good. I mean, Glenn Close is so wonderful and so is, um, Jonathan Price. Jonathan Price. Uh, they're both such beautiful actors. Uh, but this was also about her making herself small mm-hmm. to help him 
and you know feel big and he is very talented but she had to diminish herself in order to let him be the director and yeah. I, I love that line she's like oh wait I got a, I got nominated for an Emmy he's like oh that's great because clearly he looks down on, yep. on television and then she says uh, for directing and you saw that just put just a dagger in his him. heart which oh, was man. well earned I what I, I think I think the, how what, they what dealt you and with I probably loved it is that we both know people. We both know them, and they know them so mm-hmm. clearly. It's also hard for me watching that movie because God, I think if someone could write a part that I'd want to do, give me that Adam Driver role. Oh my! Oh, it's God. so good for you. Fuck. Um, okay, but I'm gonna put my own career uh, dreams aside for a second. Um, okay, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring a new question here. 2019's wrapping up. Oh yeah, which is crazy and incredibly fast. Do you feel like there's any great? Uh, what are you taking from 2019? That was a big sigh. If anyone wasn't quite sure, I'm exhausted today. You know, as we're wrapping up, we had a a studio had a really great year. Um, worked really hard. You know. Um, it is, you know, um, the industry is, sorry if I'm inarticulate right now, but you know, one of the things we try to do, and I think we do really well, is we try to stay relevant, like what's happening in the industry, you know. Um, I remember when I, you know, when we started the studio, I promised that we would never become a, a, a studio that taped auditions. I was like, there are places that do that. We focus on the acting. Yep. And now we have like five tape up tape settings. Yeah. Is that right? Setups. You well, know sure. what I mean? Yeah. With these nice cameras, because that's what the industry is right it's now. It's a huge part of our business and our bottom it's line a huge is doing part that. Of the, it, it is. Um, I mean, we do. I think we do an amazing job of it. But I can't. It saddens me that people don't get to experience what you and I got to experience on a regular basis, which is going in front of a room of people and connecting. And it really saddens me even more that there are these young people who are 24, 25, where their majority of auditions are in front of a camera without people watching them except for a reader that they bring into you know, their home, their apartment, and you know, or I'm the reader and you're the reader at the studio. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think what I'm taking from it is is I, I I think I've been kind of overwhelmed with the changing of the industry. Trying to grapple with how do you I'm handle what comes next? Um, because look, the reason we get into acting is because there are stories that we loved that we I hope it is because we love the art of acting and there are stories we really are just hungry to tell. You know, um, and we also learn more about ourselves through our acting, and then you get to explore sides of yourself. You know, it's the greatest form of empathy one can ever have. Um, but you also want people to witness it. Yeah. And it's even more fun for people to witness it in the fucking room. I'm yeah. sorry, but it's like, hey, I mean, some of my greatest memories are having those auditions where you know that you just made a room full of producers, you, you, you know, 
where you you make them breathe differently because they experienced your audition with you. Yeah. You know, and that's why you go see theater because you see theater because you're, you know, a, a magical theater experience is magical because a room full of 800 people are all breathing in sync with the actors. And that becomes a unifying experience that is beyond magical. It's it's life affirming. It's entire. That's why. I, and you and I. Let's go back to our theme. We're not alone. Nope. When you're breathing with 800 people, we're not alone. That's one reason I really find myself loving watching a movie in a theater more than I ever have in my entire life. It's not quite the same as theater, but just to experience. Uh, I saw Parasite and I saw Uncut Gems, both of them at, at the ArcLight in a full theater of people and it was some of the most exhilarating best memories I have of the entire year and I went to both of those movies alone and I still felt such community in those moments of experiencing something with people and feeling something at the exact same time as a total stranger I find that incredibly moving I do think so two episodes back I had one of my reprisal co-stars on and she talked about her self-tape for the job and I feel like this is kind of the closest we get is she had some strong feelings on how she wanted to tape it. The character mm-hmm. is very, is kind of just shy of falling apart most of the time. And so she asked her husband, film me very tight. Okay. I want, I want my face, the entire screen. And I want people to kind of, I just, I want you to watch me not fall apart. I'm going to open this water. Yes. There it is. Um, and she said that when the showrunner saw it, he said, I understand her better now because of what you did. Wow. And that moved her. And it also changed. I mean, she said this on the podcast, so I know she can say that character was supposed to die in the pilot or the second episode. And she's, and they didn't kill her. No, they rewrote everything to include her. And I honestly, it's hard for me to even imagine the show, not including Molly as like a really major touchstone character. I don't know. It's almost like trying to imagine breaking bad without Jesse Pinkman, which is what they originally were supposed to do. It's just, it's mind boggling. And so, now when I'm doing my tapes, I do try to think, what is the thing that I can do that not just like, oh, do a good job or, or book it or whatnot. But how can I, how can I, in the way that I do the scene and interpret it and also the way that I actually shoot the self-tape, try to make somebody actually feel something while they're watching it rather than just like get a check mark next to my name? Absolutely. I'm, we become, I, I, when I'm taping people, um, I feel such a freedom to go against, you know, convention at, you know, what works for them? Like, how do they fill the frame? You know, how do I shoot it? Let's like, let's, let's fuck with it. Let's give them something they haven't seen before. Um, I love that. I, I agree. I mean, we have to, that's called, I mean, we, we, you know, I mean, it's, evol- it's the evolution of the process. You, know? the you, start to realize you can't do it the way, you know, and all those rules, I hate those fucking rules with like just tape. Of, every, I just find that every time I break the, the when you give yourself permission to break the rule, that's when you book the job. When they're like, nope, just film from the shoulder up. You're like, oh, go fuck yourself. That is to the lowest common denominator of that. You know, of, of, they're, they're just assuming that actors are going to shoot in some weird way. And the problem is when actors take that as like, oh, I have to do it that way. No, they're just saying, make it interesting and don't make your acting look bad by the way you shoot it. Yeah. I, we still need to be able to see you and see whether you work in the part. But other than that, like, go to town. We're asking you to film so it anyway. Actors should definitely know that. That is that is only to protect them from themselves, from certain act, certain actors from protecting them from themselves. Does that make any sense? Certain actors protecting them from themselves. I like knowing 
I had this realization at one point that all those rules about what you're supposed to do in an audition room or what you're supposed to do in a self tape, I tried to imagine like what, where did that rule come from? Right. And it's then I started imagining like what asshole like brought a knife into into the room for like a callback and like now we're told like no props or the person who brought like a, a five course meal in is their business or the person who shoots it in like a total silhouette or is jump cutting and then I get why casting does that because some weirdos have fucked it up but that doesn't mean that's what you're gonna do yes. you're trained I went in for Star Trek mm-hmm. and I knew I was up for the role. And there was this wonderful casting director named Ron Surma, mm-hmm. uh, who worked with Junie Larry Johnson's office. And I'm about to go in, and there's a woman in full Vulcan gear. <laughs> I mean, she's got the ears, she's got the outfit. Um, and then I, I heard her, her audition was very bad. <laughs> and then as she left, I said to Ron, I go, you know, he had cast me in a couple of things, so I felt okay to ask him. I was like, is that okay? What did he say? He's like, no. No. Absolutely not. But it would have been okay if her acting were brilliant. If her acting were brilliant, then no one would give a shit. If you're doing that to cover up the acting, it's yeah. bad. I remember going in for like a two-line part in a movie. I think it's called like Why Him. It's Brian Cranston and James Franco. And the whole thing is Cranston's the father-in-law-to-be. And Franco is like a rich playboy who runs like a video game company. And he hates him for his daughter. But the character was to play Franco's like manservant. Yeah. And it was a total comedic relief part. Only a couple lines here and there. And the the place was called Gorilla Games. And I remember I showed up and everyone looked like me there. And I don't mean like physically. I mean, everyone was dressed the same, like looking to be the kind of preppy, someone's going to run all over me assistant. And And this guy walks in. This guy walks in with total big dick energy. And he is wearing a gorilla costume. Okay. Like no head, but neck down. He is wearing like a gorilla onesie. Like if you worked at Disneyland, it's, I mean, and this... I could tell by the way he walked in, like that wasn't his acting. That was, that was also there too. But he knew what he was doing. That guy booked the part. He and did. It was, oh God! Well, it's also because like that's exactly what the personal assistant for this guy would do. He'd like dress up in a to- in a way that would make him look totally terrible and pathetic because he's the manservant for Gorilla Games. And so, like, yeah, you're gonna have me in the fucking costume. But he wasn't apologetic and it wasn't hiding him. In fact, he seemed more himself than anyone in that audition room. And I felt like when it's the expression of the scene, when it's the expression of the truth of it, you're never wrong. But if you don't know what to do to find the truth of it, and so you just go to the quickest Mad Lib to like fill in the character, that's when you start getting Vulcan ears. Well, because they're Vulcan. How does that add anything to your performance? What does that tell me about the Vulcan, all Vulcans have the fucking ears. We have a makeup department for that. But I remember seeing that guy. I was like, that guy has made a choice off of something solid. Yeah. Off of a foundation that's real. And I was very impressed by him. And I, and since then, have never wanted to run into him in an audition room. <laughs> but you're so right. I love what you just said. It's true. You go to the Vulcan when you don't know what else the fuck to do. Because if you're actually great, why the hell are you wearing the Vulcan outfit? <laughs> I mean, there are times where, like, if you're playing a, uh, you know, a magician, you might want to wear the cape. Yeah. That makes sense. Sure. Well, if you're doing that, I mean, that just yeah. serves it. But you say, what did I take from 2019? You know, one thing I think that our going into the new year, and I think we both deal with right now, is 
um, you know, we have a lot of, we have so many actors who are auditioning and doing well and booking. And then, you know, you have those other actors who should be auditioning mm-hmm. and should be going out and booking. And it destroys me that they're not getting those opportunities. You know, it destroys you. It's yeah. so, it's so hard because I, I want to call these people and go, what the fuck are you thinking? Yeah. Um, and it's to help those actors, you know, we got to, we got to make sure that we're keeping them um, creative and yeah. excited because that goes such a long way. And I think it is hard. It is challenging when, you know, you're not getting the opportunities that you want and to not get depressed and to not let that, to not lose your motivation because then you end up losing the inspiration. It's one of the most consistent things I hear on the podcast. A number of people who are doing exciting things. I mean, most of the people who are sitting at one of these mics, they have some exciting booking that's going on with them. Something is happening. And without fail, they'll talk about how at one point something wasn't going well. And so I remember I talked to Sarah Fletcher and she was talking about how she started making jewelry. I was talking to Kelly Walker and she started making succulents and reading tarot cards time and time and time again. It's like, just find a way to be creative, find something that sparks joy to bring back like Marie Kondo and bring 2019 full circle. Uh, But it's the thing that brings you joy will bring you back to the acting. You're doing the podcast. We're doing the podcast. I mean, it's, it's, you and I are working doing this online stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you just get got to get excited by the power of you. And I think that sometimes this industry makes you lose sight of that. You know, you stop getting in flow with all that you can do if you just actually sit down from 8 to 12 like mm-hmm. we didn't do. But you're also doing great, you know. Um, and it's having perspective on those droughts. You know, I think... Um, you know, when I watch, it, it is interesting to me when an actor, this is the challenging thing, when an actor has never had the experience of the opportunities. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? When they've, they haven't gotten a shot to get into the room. Um, and especially in today's world, you know, the shots are put yourself on tape. Yeah. No, to get in the room feels like you won Willy Wonka's golden ticket. Right. And it feels like the win in and it of itself. I know. And we tell people not to make the audition the event of your day, and I stand by that, but it's harder and harder when you have more challenging six these days. a year in the room. It does feel like an event, and finally in the room with the casting director. Objectively, it is a bit of an event in their, in their day. It just doesn't help them to think of it that way. And, you know, I think I just look at the people who've had their, that opportunity, and they realize what the importance of is of being in a classroom in front of a lot of, you know, lovely actors and, um, and really preparing and trying to lose themselves in the room that day, you know, and tell that story and to block out the fact that you're acting in front of people that you know and be able to tell an authentic story. Because if you can do that in front of your peers and people that you know, it's going to make it so much easier to go in front of a network and yep. do that. I actually find it's often more challenging acting in front of your peers than it is acting in front of like a whole bunch of studio executives. Well, I'm actually going to segue to a question then that is directly related to this. What do you say to actors who uh, whose point of view or argument might be class 
I'm worse in class. I'm wor- uh, classes make me worse. I'm better if I just go in the room. We both know tens, hundreds of people who kind of take that point of view. What What is your take on that? What What is that about? Maybe for someone that happens to be true. I think that's the rarity, but I think there are certain people that really just hate class settings. And I can think of, I can count on one hand where it's true. Yeah. Um, I might have less experience with it. You might now have two full hands of that. Yeah, probably two full hands. Um, you know, obviously, if they're in the wrong acting studio, that also may be true. You yeah. know, um, you know, are they around the right people? You know, are they in an environment that makes them feel safe and they feel good? So it may not even be that. Might be true in that particular class. Maybe if it's even like you know, you've I've had people in my class that I think were not a right fit for me. That I you know. Uh, that I've put with other people and they've been happier, you know, and likewise they've been out and gone into mind and that was the better environment for them. I think mm-hmm. that, you know, you have to account for that. Some people, uh, but for the most part, I think that's often, that's often an excuse, you know, like don't judge me on what I just did mm-hmm. because out there I could do so much better. Uh, I think I said something like that. You know, I remember I entered a class that was really trying to hold me accountable for this scene. I was like, I know what to do. They're like, you're not doing it, though. Yeah. I was like, yeah, but I know what it is. They're like, you may know what it is. And that was the difference. They're like, you may know what it is, but it's not coming cle- It's not coming through. And that was really challenging. I mean, that's often what, you know, acting class can be. It's kind of like a, a, a you know, you're being held accountable for your at right there. So that's why it's really important that a person feels safe with the teacher. Because if you don't feel safe with the teacher, it's going to, you know, a lot of defense mechanisms are going to come out and you're going to start to, you know, what story are you telling yourself? Is it about control? You know? I remember right before I started in your class, mm-hmm. um, I briefly took class. I won't even say at a, at a different place right before. And I remember going in and thinking, I'm going to trick them. I'm going to trick them about who I am. Really? Yeah. I you consciously said that to yourself. I don't know if I used the word trick, but that was definitely the impulse. And it was, so I was just tired. I mean, this is embarrassing because this is 10 years ago now, uh, but I was embarrassed of being seen as the young, vulnerable, sweet kid, which wow. Lord knows even then I, Still had many years of of that, um, but I was already in rebellion of it. Nice mm-hmm. sunglasses. I'm putting the sunglasses back on. Sunglasses so are back because I like the way you look when you're telling the story. Um, I remember thinking I am going to go in and make them think. This wasn't the exact word, but it's I'm going to be Ryan Gosling. It's that I'm going to be brooding. I'm going to be angsty. They're not going to know every thought that I have. No one's going to think that I'm wearing my heart on my sleeve. And I absolutely, I wore like a hat. I never wear a hat. I wore like a long, dark coat. I wore mostly like grays and blacks. And I did it. How'd it go? For like three weeks, I, I totally convinced people that I was a person that I wasn't for a couple weeks. And How then, exhausting was that? Terribly. It was terribly. And I just remembered that every every relationship I was making felt fake. Oh, God. And that it was nice to be able to execute a different type of part to maybe not feel pigeonholed by something that people wanted me to be. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll give it that little piece. You were undercover, Brian. I was. I was undercover. Um, I'm sure that I lowered my voice and talked like this a whole bunch, too. Uh, but what I realized is, like, that was also something I could never keep up forever. 
it, it, it occurred to me at some point, like, so what, you're going to keep doing this? You are going to filter every single impulse you have through this bullshit? And then I quickly left that place because also it bothered me that no one saw through it at some point. Um, but I do think there's something to when people are like, the class is not for me, that it's... um that people are capable of tricking people for a little while, that you give them two scenes, if you put your while. heart into it, and if you have certain, especially if you're a gifted performer, you'll be able to pull that off, and that then there's that moment when something's not going to go great, which is why you're in class in the first place, and where you want people to see you honestly, and to see the real walls that you're eventually going to hit, and Lord knows, you can go into one room and trick a casting director in one audition, you can, but over five auditions for a series regular, fine, maybe you do there too. But then you're going to keep that up through a, a five-season run. It's not a chance in hell. At some point, your weaknesses, your walls, they're going to show up. And if you haven't dealt with them, they're going to be there. And the people who are surrounding you are going to be people who know you very well at some point. It's going to be people close to you who know your I, shit. I will say, you know, this last week has been a, like a really lovely week in, our, in, in acting classes and my classes at... Um, we do this, uh, you do it, the holiday class where people, you know, bring in scenes that, you know, normally we assign scenes, current material, but they, I said, bring in scenes that, uh, from something that made you want to act or, uh, recently re-inspired you to act. Yeah, something that brings joy. And the brilliance that I saw, you got to see, oh, wow, you guys are, are Ferraris, <laughs> you know, when you actually put your mind to it, you're capable of doing this. Um, and I think, you know, I remember going to therapy uh, and Janice, we were talking about our clients and she asked me, because I think she's got some clients who are very successful actors and she was asking I think we were actually connecting at a different level as as professional people who dealt with who were both serve as therapists in certain ways. Uh, and she was asking me whether I found a connection between people's brilliant acting and their level of of happiness and and self understanding. Okay, I'm interested. What do you find? Um, I said that my actors who were truly like it really evolved in their process and I think are truly sophisticated technically. And when I say te- technically, it just means truly have technique and know, and enough technique to where they can really drop in and be present. They have problem solving skills. I find that they're the ones who are the least defensive about themselves and their process and are really quite wonderful people to be around. And she said, me too. She goes, I have noticed that I have, she goes, I have some really wealthy clients who are work a lot and I watch them and they're not good. And the, the ones who are not happy. And I watch the ones who are like evolved, happy, really able to connect. And I watch their work and it's incredible. And I think that makes sense because I think when you walk around the world, truly knowing that you're really quite good at what you do not that you haven't earned a part because you have the right type or whatever it is you just walk around the world differently yeah it feels very earned and i think you've you and i've talked about that about you know uh uh 
you know, it, there's so many different phases as an actor. Sometimes as an actor, you know, you're not booking jobs as guest stars or co-stars or whatever because you literally aren't quite understanding what the text is asking of you. And then you learn that skill set. Yeah. I can actually, it, I can do what the writer's asking. I'm picking up on these clues. I can, I'm getting all the beats. I can give you what you want. It doesn't actually... Uh, ask that much of me other than my intellect and understanding of it it's not i don't have to draw anything very significant for myself yeah and initially there's kind of like a a reward to that because you get paid a lot yeah but then after a while that the reward dwindles from that because you didn't actually have to like really draw into your true creativity yeah and i think there is something about booking something or going or getting to do something where you really get to show uh the depth of your imagination and 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 you you get to learn more about you and you get to learn more about your process and the act of getting ready for that thing. I think that's a really good answer to that. What's that? I like that answer. Okay, I'm gonna segue for a second. You would talk to me about wanting to talk about presence. Yeah. Um so presence is an interesting one. I feel like presence is a bit of a moving target. I think it means different things to different people. Um, I know. So can I ask what presence means to you? When you're saying that you want someone to be present, um, what do you mean? You're right, it is a moving target because people... Presence is everything. It's being with yourself, with the other person, really truly in the environment. Um... Look, I think um, I was just talking to a dear friend of mine whose brother got sober uh, a couple of years ago. Okay. And he was telling me how wonderful it is to be around him now. He goes, now that he's been sober for a couple of years, he's truly with you. And before he was a little foggy in the eyes, he'd be looking at his phone, be talking, you know, to people at his work. And you never got that reward of connection. So to me, what what is presence but just connection? And I think, look, all of, and this look, it's all tied into the same fucking thing. Uh, you're talking about therapy. Yeah. About like when someone says, oh, you know, I've never been to therapy, I've never thought about it. Um, maybe those people are really good at connection. You and know, you, you know what, what person I love, you remember lovely, lovely Paige Spara? Yes. I love Paige. You know, one of her greatest gifts ever was God. Could she connect with you? And look at her; she's on the Good Doctor. Oh, she's incredible! And that—that that, she has a superpower for that. When she you talk to her, power. it feels like you're the only person in the room. That's it. And she had that. And I had another actress, Kimmy Shields, who I love and adore. And like, right off, right, right when they came into consultations, it was like, oh, you're gonna work because you can connect so fully. Like, you're not hiding anywhere. That was the striking thing about Mahershala when he came in. Yeah, he was a great. I mean, I didn't even. I I barely knew him from House of Cards at the at, when he was there, but there was something striking in Toolshop of almost like gravity pulling you towards. Just if if you are going to speak to him, you are going to be there sharing space. Oh my god! It was almost impossible. Your body not could to vibrate. Be. You know, he was only he was there for just a tool shop. Yeah. You know, and we had worked together before uh, coaching on some stuff. But like, he was already filming so many things. So. He was like busy. He was in the middle of working. But what I love about him, he wasn't there to, you know, he was literally only there to like 
for process. He wanted to feel better about his process. That's it. Like he didn't need us. He would still work no matter what. But I think there are people who would want to get better at their process but they wouldn't be present to the actual person they're working with. I know. It would be so internal. He was, he was, he'll give, but my point is, like, what is it about presence? I think, look, if you go back to technical in acting, okay. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just about being connected, but connected to what? what? Who is this person connected to? Are you connected to, are you like Paige and really connected to the person you're talking to? Are you connected to the bullshit in your past? Are you connected to this story you keep on telling yourself? You know, I think, Connection always has this term. Oh, that person's really connected. That doesn't. It's not always a good thing. Yeah. What are you connected to? That's the main thing someone's got to ask. You know, when you just see that person in the room who's just not there, you're like, where are you? They're just not connected to you. Yeah, they're, they're present to something you, else. Like you're never just not connected. You are when you're dead. We can get depressed later. <laughs> no, but that's that's really what it comes down to. And I, I'm hoping that our you know, I just think the way you approach acting is how you approach life. Like in life, if you're not able to connect, I hope you're consumed by the obstacles that are keeping you from connection. Like if you're not able to connect to the person you're with in the room, if you're not able to connect to your your lover, your 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 family, your, your scene partner, your scene partner, uh, get interested in that. But I think too often is that that's been such a lifelong practice that there's a lack of awareness that there's a better side to it you know that there's you can move the needle on that particular part of your life you can you know and I think but this is where I think you know we do the thing I love about you know all of our faculty and you're so wonderful you're such a you know you're you know it feels like you're a family member um you really care about the well-being of your people and when you're watch them not enjoying life or acting in the way that they can you want to intervene yeah and you want to step in and go hey you could be enjoying your acting so much more and as well as just like being sitting in this room and you and i both know is when you watch people sit in a room like sometimes we all know like i have a room full of like like in class when you were in class you know there are times you know, there'd be certain classes where it's just like everyone is so alive and electric and present with each other and free yep. and generous. And then there's sometimes that person who comes in who seems to feel like they're in, you know, like they're in a Nazi uh, <laughs> uh, uh, gathering. It, that it feels like everyone else's warmth and presence has somehow ruined their day. Yeah. And, you, and, and it's very weird when they blame the room. And you're like, you're amongst such wonderful people and you just want want to go, what's going on? And hopefully they really get excited by that. You know, I, I had one actor who I really adore and it's taking me a while, you know, he he's he's trying to come along. He's very talented. He just sometimes has a difficult time getting out of his own way. And, you know, the one thing I've tried to get better at over the years is being to push, but be patient. Push, but be patient. Meaning like, you're going to do it when you're ready. You as long as it's them. not at the expense of the overall group dynamic, I've got to make sure, like, I can't, I'm going to read you to when you're ready to do it. As long as it's not at the expense of the group. Because if it's at the expense of the group, then we have to maybe consider a different yes. room for you. Uh, but I said, you did this thing, and I go, you know, 2000, I feel like, you know what 2019 has done for you? It's gotten you 
so much closer to being ready to give in. How did he take that? I was worried about what he, how he was going to take it when I said it. I really have to admit. I was like, I may lose. I, like he may get very upset. But he goes, he felt so seen and witnessed. You know what he said? He goes, I am, man. I am. I know. I'm a tough one. I'm a tough one. But I'm really. It's kind of beautiful. I'm getting ready to give it. So he's like, I'm, I'm, coming, I'm coming close. But what I like so much about this is I, I feel like I feel like get present is a, is a beautiful goal and is kind of the goal. But if we're not specific about what that means Was that to specific? people, I think it, it's getting there. I really do. Because it's. I think what we're asking for is people to be present with their scene partner and present present to their scene partner, what's going on with them, and the givens of the character. And if you're present to those three things at the same time, it's going to be hard to fuck up a scene. Well, I th- there's an actor I had named Alex who, uh, you know, Harvard, so smart. This is years ago, and he came to me, and uh, he was just drowning uh, he just couldn't, you know, because, you know, we were, we're trying to get him to understand film and television and all that. And he had, you know, he was so smart, but just not present. And uh, he dropped out of my class. Okay. Uh, uh, and he was such a lovely human. Um, he came back to me a year and a half later and was so much better. He went to a different acting class um, to a Meisner. Mm-hmm. class um it didn't solve any of the stuff we were working on but he was so much more connected so i thought that was a really nice like you know it, it, you know the basis of meisner repetition and all that it it got him stop at least a little bit not more not worried about the words so much yeah and you know recently i found that you know i have this uh a few people who just came from certain meisner programs and it's really lovely how much they love to connect mm-hmm. they don't you know they don't know how to use the givens, and they don't necessarily they don't necessarily always know what story they're telling. But that was, uh, you know, I and that's why we do Meisner at the studio. Sometimes we do. I mean, we do repetition oh. is because it's it, it's uh, if you need it, it's 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 a it's a direct route to uh, you know kind of um, intimate connection. I did an exercise in my class where I had people tell a personal. Well, first they had to do an audition. On camera. Oh, I love this. Please tell the story. And then we put the camera down and they had to tell a personal story. And the personal story had to be something personal. It had to be something vulnerable. Mike Probiglia recently did an essay on telling stories. And one of the first things he said, I'll share the link with you. One of the first things he said is, tell the story you don't want to tell. That's the one we want to hear. And it's like, yeah, that's first step one. Um, But everyone really showed up to that assignment. And the remarkable thing was, so they tell their story. And the second the story's over, I put the camera back up, turn it back on. We're going to do the audition again. And every single audition was better. Every single audition was better. Now, a couple of them, if we were actually auditioning the role, the emotional truth that they were present to maybe doesn't tell the story the way the story needs to be told. And if it were an audition, we need to kind of coach that into a different place. But what became infinitely true was someone who's present to an emotional truth and sharing that with somebody, that is infinitely more interesting than everything else on the entire planet. And who they were became much clearer, how that expressed itself in their work. And all of a sudden you had, I'm going to be honest, the original auditions, it was kind of everyone was playing closest to the pin wins. Everyone was kind of playing at this idea of what the scene was. And then the second you actually had them get truthful to something within them, all 16 scenes were different. They were 
lived in, they were present, they were breathed into, and they were emotionally affecting. And it was just such a reminder of the tech, the, the givens of the scene are not what's going to make you shine. Your truth shining through within those givens, that's the answer. And getting to be present towards your emotional honesty is a huge step on the way to get there. Oh, because you did that assignment, I did that. I, mean, we used to, I used to do that assignment, and I, I it, it's always, a, when it's in with the, with a group that's ready for it, it's always, an, a, it's a beautiful day. And I, I did it my Wednesday, and it was a beautiful day. It yep. was a gorgeous day. Um, you know, you have to, your group is ready. I know the people in, in that class. They're they're willing, they're able, they're hungry, and they have, it's just this, you they know. They have immense love for each other, too, which immense helps Immense love for lot. each other, and that's other safe. And when you do it in a class that's not ready for it, it's also interesting. Uh but I think it goes back to curiosity, you know, like sometimes like when you're going to tell that story, it means you have to be really willing to expose yourself and to also have, you can't be successful in that assignment if you've never thought about those stories. True. And all those people had thought about those stories. As you can probably tell, we weren't anywhere near done with this conversation, so we will be back with a part two of my interview with John Rosenfeld next Monday to close out 2019 in style. Until then, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Thank you to presenting sponsor, John Rosenfeld Studios, and also thank you to our sponsor, Horrible Haikus, everyone's favorite offensive poetry game. Please don't forget they're running their 50% off sale through the end of the year, so if you still haven't finished your uh, holiday shopping yet, get to it, and you can check the show notes for details on that. So until we meet again next week, happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, merry almost Christmas, and thank you again for listening and supporting Industry Town. 